proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. I am your host, Aaron Carr, along with my co-host, Zach Fisher and Chris Santola. What's up, fellas? We're back. We are even, back. Even though I heard uh, that you were making some snide remarks about us not being here. You know, fellas, it's it's pretty hard to compete with a professor at Notre Dame. Oh, it is. whatever. I mean, as much as you guys have uh, blessed me by your intellectual <laughs> prowess, <laughs> uh, just a uh, conversations with Luke Potter were, were pretty intense, pretty good. Um, so, no. But I missed you. Missed it, you. it was good, and, and we missed you. I mean, I just don't want your IQ dropping drastically talking to us today. Well, well the good news is the, confess- <laughs> the confessions hold us up. Yeah, they keep the IQ at a certain level. I don't have to. I don't have to dumb anything down for anyone. I just talk at my normal. It's pretty dumb. People can just grasp it pretty easily. <laughs> well, I guess today we we've got to share some love here because. The 1689 Beard Guys have really blessed us. They've sent us over some bombs, some oil. Uh, they want us to be looking, looking pimp and uh, uh, doing well uh, for uh, for their for their. Uh, what am I trying to say here, fellas? Somebody help me out. You guys are like stone cold. Well, you can't say looking good for the ladies because we're all married. That's true. Looking for look, the lady, the lady, my lady, Sarah Fisher. I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, That's man. That's kind of awkward. Wife, my wife Becky wants the beard on fleek, so I gotta. <laughs> she uh, likes the beard. That's good. I gotta keep some product in there. Yeah. My my wife's fine as long as it's groomed. It's when it's not groomed that she uh she's not happy. I shaved it off a couple of times and freaked people out at church like they didn't know who I was. Freaked me out. It was during the <laughs> preaching class. That's I came right. in and I thought someone had like kidnapped you and hijacked the class. Yeah. Like, who's this guy? So if you are if you are in the Manly Club and have a beard, we highly recommend to you uh, 1689 Beard Balm. Uh, it is a, uh, a not only is it good stuff, it's confessional, right? right. Yep. So. Yeah, Scott Anderson is the guy that uh, started it. He runs the company along with another guy now. Um, and basically, they Scott told me that he's what he would describe as trivocational. <laughs> And so this is really an avenue that people can support him and his church and everything like that. He's a real busy guy, and he makes a good beard balm. So we appreciate him throwing us some product. We will have something posted on our uh, Facebook page that hopefully you can like and share and get the word out about those guys. Yep. Well, gentlemen, what's been going on? School's uh, winding down for this term, so this is like my one week of kind of freedom before I think like April 10th I I start another class. So I'm only doing one at a time this time, so I don't kill myself. So, so what's your next course? Uh, the next course is uh, Old Testament two, so it's basically just like the second half of the first one. It's like right where the dispensation breaks. So right. It's like yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Chris, that's I'm a glad, trigger word. I'm glad Chris <laughs> laughed at that. I was getting concerned. I I, I thought it was funny. It was a bit of a delayed reaction. Yeah. I was kind of like, did he just say that? <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so uh, what are you uh, learning in the second half of the Old Testament? Where did they break the dispensation at? They, they, they're just honestly going through books. <laughs> like, I, that word, I hate that word. Actually, you're um, a Baptist. You should be familiar with it. I'm familiar with it. I don't like it though. Um, but yeah, so they they did the first Old Testament one is like Genesis through Second Samuel, and then so Old Testament two just picks up after that and finishes off the the Testament. Okay. So it, out of this section, what do you think is your favorite book? Out of the first section, uh, out of the second section that oh, you're going to be going coming up. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to to go through Job. Yeah. See how they handle that because it's like kind of a genre change, you know? Sure. And so it'll be cool to see how, just different perspectives on that book. Yeah. Plus, we mention Job every week on this podcast. So. Well, it's kind of a central book. It is, yeah. Sovereignty of God and all. Yep. What about you, what about you there, uh, Mr. Santola? What's your favorite Old Testament book? Favorite Old Testament book? Oh, man. I would probably go with the Psalms. Just uh, You're a just worship guy. I'm a worship guy, and... Uh, there's just so much going on there in the way of expression of praise towards God. and He's a man and after then, God's own heart. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just love the, uh, the prophetic aspects of the Psalms and uh, you know, how they speak to the person of Christ. And so I, I like to spend some time there. Very cool. Well, this past week I had my last class, last official class that I taught with the, the ladies uh, at my church called um, Her Theology Matters. We've been covering the doctrine of uh, God and the doctrine of Scripture. And the last section here, we talked about the providence of God. And it was so cool to talk about the fact that all things uh, are in God's good hands. And uh, not just some things, but all things. You know, we talked about the fact that a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground. And, and what we were talking about is that in life, the difficulties, the, the struggles, the trials, um, those are, it's like an anvil and it's being struck by the hammer of life, and you're either going to be made more hard or you're going to be made more humble, Mm -hmm. as the confession says. And we spent a lot of time talking about that. And I got to tell you, it's been a blessing working with um, 30-some ladies in my church and just kind of walking through systematic theology. Um, It just, it's exciting to see and to know that the the kind of the discipleship and the outpouring that will go on from that is really, really cool. It's awesome that you had that much of a turnout, really. Yeah, I was you know? kind of floored. Lit- cool. Literally, we said we'd do it if we had five. Yeah. You know, so, and they're reading Calvin and Charles Hodge and Michael Horton. We just kind of picked a cross section there so that we could be interacting with different theologians from different mm-hmm. time periods. And so, cool. Yeah. What about you, Mr. Santolo? What have you been up to? Oh, just been keeping busy, trying to get some time in studying here lately, and then just working on stuff with the worship ministry at the church and teaching and uh, and then just spending time with the family so it's been a good time you're not going to tell us about the weather today no i figured i'd spare you <laughs> it actually is uh you know it's it's actually we've had a turn the snow is gone yep and uh i know everybody loves our podcast that we give a weather updates but uh <laughs> michigan is you never know what you're going to get so it's uh it's enjoyable but uh chris uh is is we're going to talk today we're going to talk about the doctrine of free will i'm sure you have a ton of of things you want to share about this doctrine am i correct oh yeah i mean this is just one of those key key issues that uh if you get this wrong you're going to end up in some pretty uh funky yeah uh places so yeah it's going to get you sideways real fast yeah uh, Zach, why don't you start us off? We'll use the um, 
we use the London Baptist Confession, which is very similar to mine, but um, just use that as a basis, and we'll go forward. Cool. So the first two, it's chapter 9 in the in the second London Confession, and, and the first two sections really just talk about man's will before the fall, which we've discussed when we discussed the fall of man. So basically that it's um, not forced you know, to either good or evil, and I'm paraphrasing here. Um, but then man fell, and then since then, uh, section three is really what gets to what most people trip up over, which says, um, man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. And so that's where when people mention free will, that's usually what they're talking about. So, so gentlemen, what, what, what is it that we, what are some of the, the dangers of misunderstanding this doctrine? I think when you start talking about free will, or as you know, Zach was just saying, people talk about it in the sense of always having the power of contrary choice. Um, people tend to come to the scriptures with a presumption that that is an infallible truth that can just be assumed uh, is that we have free will, a fully libertarian, you might say, free will. And the fact is that Scripture would tell us that is not true. Um, and it's really even easily demonstrated uh, just practically that that is not true. Uh, but when you have that type of a, a perspective and you start coming to the, the Bible and trying to understand salvation and trying to understand how it is that, uh, that we are saved, it can really throw you sideways because we start assuming of ourselves that we are capable of things that we are not capable of. And we start taking credit for things that the scripture does not allow us to take credit for. And it can ultimately form, I think, a philosophical base and a theological base for a, uh, a type of, uh, in a sense, you might just say, a, a gospel that is not the gospel that you find taught by scripture. I think um, for me, some of the guys at my church, you know, my brothers who I love, who would disagree with like the reform perspective as far as man's capability, um, in a in a weird way, I'm thankful for what I would consider their inconsistency because they're not going to take the idea of free will to a logical conclusion because there's not any person at my church um, in leadership and any of the I mean any of the members that I know and that I'm close with nobody would doubt that um, salvation is secure. Right. So uh, but a lot of those people who fall, you know, they don't really like the term Arminian, but non-Calvinist. Right. A lot of those people who will give man a lot more, assume man has a lot more freedom than he really has. They don't take that. They don't take that to the logical conclusion, which is that, well, if you choose Christ freely in your in your sin, apart from a work of God, you should also be able to choose to walk away. You know, and so I'm kind of thankful that they don't go there, although that would be consistent to say that man is fully free to choose God. And he's also fully free to walk away. It's funny you say that because, yeah, the consistency is there. But I think what what you're saying, Chris, is also the fact that, but that's not that's not practical. Yeah, our life we're not truly totally free. 
Um, right. I, I can't just really do anything I want. The whole uh, idea that um, the libertarian viewpoint just doesn't work practically. Yeah. Right. And, you know, historically, uh, throughout church history, as this kind of has been worked out, there's been a couple major times when this really was the big issue. Uh, you know, you, you've got the Augustinian and Pelagian uh, kind of debate, you might say, that uh, that went on. And up into the time of the Reformation, uh, you have Erasmus writing his Freedom of the Will, and then Luther countering with the bondage of the will. And then later on, you have Jonathan Edwards writing his book, The Freedom of the Will, but which is a little confusing because he's actually taking the same side as Luther would on the bondage of the will, but nuancing it in, in a much more careful manner, I think. And so, uh, you know, one of the things I think that has to be recognized with this as well is when we're talking uh, biblically about the, the will of man, we're talking about something that is spiritual in nature, uh, something that is very specific, and we're talking about the ability of man to choose God, uh, to choose holiness, to choose uh, to believe in Christ, and which is something that the Scripture tells us that we are not able to do. Um, and it comes down to the issue of nature. Uh, one of the examples that I have loved to give that I have found seems to illustrate this well is I'll tell people, imagine that you're skydiving and you're, you're flying through the air and, you know, I can imagine, I've never done it myself, but I could imagine there is a great sense of freedom. I mean, I can move this way and that way and do flips and who knows what. And, you know, what an amazing sense of freedom as you're just plummeting through the sky, but there's something that you can't do. And that is, you can't stop. Right. You know, there, because there is a greater law that is governing over you. And that if you don't do something about it, it eventually is Splat. going to lead <laughs> to your death. And that in the same way, uh, the law of sin uh, you know, total depravity, as we would define it, uh, rules over us. We are in bondage to sin, Scripture says. Um, you know, this is where, you know, when Jesus says, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed, he's not just talking about freedom in some kind of random sense. He, he's talking about this freedom to the bondage of sin nature that rules over us, and that if, if we are going to uh, overcome that that nature, that law, and be able to do something uh, about this, uh, the direction that we're headed, God has to intervene according to the scriptures. God is the one who's going to have to step in and save us. And so there, there is something about our nature that has to be overcome, that has to be undone in order for our will to be changed. Yeah, I think an illustration we often hear is the idea of going to a cemetery and digging up a grave and calling that body out of the grave. It can't. It, it, it's it's incapable. It's dead. Yeah. And Scripture clearly identifies us in the same way, uh, pre pre regeneration. 
what I want to move us along to is this idea that once we are regenerated, there is now the ability uh, to choose things that are holy, um, mm-hmm. to to display faith that is ours. It's 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 our faith, but these things have been gifted because of the regeneration. You look at um, section four. It says, "When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace." He freeth him from his natural bondage under sin, and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Apart from that quickening, apart from that spiritual awakening, we're dead. But once we have that, we can now choose spiritually good things. And I love the way the the confessions grab that. and, and that's something to be mindful of, that we are to choose and make right decisions, but understanding the ability to choose is a gift from God itself. Right. It really that's comes what down, I love. Oh, go ahead. It really comes down to the issue of um, regeneration and faith and which one comes first. And so like when we talk about free will, uh, a lot of times growing up in like traditional like Baptist culture, like it's just assumed that... Um, faith precedes regeneration. You know, you call out to Christ, and then he makes you a new creation. Uh, but that doesn't really fit with a lot of biblical passages, um, and it it gives man a lot more freedom than he has when he's in his state of, he's dead in his sins, he's an enemy of God, he's a son of Adam. Um, how can, like, like Chris pointed out, like, it has to do with your nature. Like, you can't be anything other than what you are unless God acts, right? right. And so it makes, me, it makes me think of, everyone knows this passage, but Romans 8, verse 7, uh, 7 and 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, while exercising faith in God is pleasing to God. So that would fall under the category of something you can't do, apart from a work of the Holy Spirit. I was actually going to go to that exact same verse just now. Oh, there you go. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, went with this, was in dealing with the will... He said that the will is free, but that the will is the servant of the mind and that the will always chooses what the mind deems most desirable. And here, as you just read in Romans chapter eight, you know, seven through nine there, that uh, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It is at enmity towards God. Um, It cannot submit to God's law. Cannot. It's just it. And, you know, when we say cannot, that's an ability word. Um, it's not that it just may not, that it just needs permission. It cannot do that. And we know that it's not, sorry, go ahead. And so that's where the issue of, in that case, for the mind of, that is, has the mindset of the flesh, uh, the will is never going to choose to submit itself to God's law. It is not going to choose God, but that's where you're saying regeneration comes in and there is a new heart, a new spirit. Uh, there, there is a transformation of nature at the level of our nature to where suddenly we find God desirable and that, you know, that we would give anything to, to just have him and everything is changed from there. And from that, now we have that ability, uh, to choose. And and we know that when it's, when we talk about the ability language in those verses that you read, it's not 
that we desire to sin, but God makes us, or that we, it's not that we desire to please God, but God somehow is hindering us. So it's not like the poor, the poor non-elect person who wishes that he could follow Christ, but God's just not choosing him. Like, right. we are freely rebelling against God, and we also cannot choose God. So it's yeah. not like we're being forced. I want to pick- the person who is in their sin, uh, to, that has the mindset of the flesh, as Romans eight says there. Um, it is, they are doing exactly what they desire to do right. as they reject God. And this is a huge point because a lot of people want to play, well, then we must be robots. Yeah. We're not robots. And there is will, free will. And, and I'm a big defender of the free will. I think sometimes uh, people who are introduced to the doctrines of grace sometimes go in in a very um, aggressive manner and, mm-hmm. and miss some very key things here. One of which is that man is free in the sense that we make decisions every day. But what I hear you guys clearly saying, which is right, the choices that we make are hostile to God. Mm-hmm. We're making choices, free choices, but they're hostile to God. And it's until our hearts are changed that we are incapable of pleasing God and seeking those things which are uh, bringing him most glory and in, in, yeah. in, 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 uh, reflecting most good. It's interesting, uh, the uh, the illustration I think we've used in this podcast is you can go to the movie theater and you can literally choose the seat you want, except you can't choose the one that's already taken. Mm-hmm. So your, your, your choice there in just the practical manner is limited. And I think that's one of the things we have to come to terms with and on this core doctrine. Yeah. You know, in terms of that, uh, the argument you guys just raised there of, uh, you know, oh, well, you're saying we're just robots and that whole kind of thing. I like to flip that around and say, you know, I, I hear people who who aren't saved, who don't know Christ, who will say, you know, you Christians, you're just uh, you guys are in the bondage of religion. And, uh, you know, man, I'm free. I can go where I want, do what I want with who I want, whenever I want, you know, so on and so forth. And they think that they're free. And I say, no. No, you're not. You are a slave. Your sin nature, I mean, you want to talk robots. Your sin nature is dictating to you what you will want to do, where you will want to go, uh, why you will want to go there, who you will want to be with, etc. You are a slave to your sin nature. That's why Jesus says, he whom the Son sets free free is free indeed. Right. Yeah, what, there is no greater freedom than there is in being exactly who God has made us to be in Christ. And, and you ask anybody who understands addiction, and they will tell you they are owned by it. Mm-hmm. And that is a perfect example of the way sin owns us uh, until we are freed. And once we are freed, as you've already stated, Chris, we are free indeed. And for the first time, we're able to make decisions that are different than we were capable of making before because we're a new creation right it's not we're not we're not merely um well, we're not in adam at that point right we're in christ and so we have his spirit within us who enables us to do things like mortify our sinful desires which our nature is still dictating to us the remnant of that sinful flesh that still remains until glorification um, but we have the holy spirit who gives us freedom to obey it's not just free to do whatever we want. You know, we're free to do something specific, which is what we've been called and predestined to do, which is good works, which is pleasing Christ, things like that. 
Well, what are the it's questions? not a freedom to do whatever we want to do. It's a free. Well, in a sense, it is because if we are in Christ, we are going to want to do what pleases God. Mm-hmm. But it, it's rather a, it's not a freedom to just do anything. It's a freedom to do what we ought to do. Yeah. One of the things that amazes me in, in this time period that we all get to to participate in the life of the church is that we're seeing a resurgence of the Reformed doctrines, specifically the doctrines of grace um, and the understanding of the fact that uh, God chose me before I ever <laughs> uh, uh, ever had inclinations towards him. What's ironic about that is the relativism we live in and the idea that everybody just does whatever they want and whatever's right for you is right for you and yet in the midst of that relativism which is a, just a debacle of what of deterioration is is in the church a desire for that for that strong truth of of Romans mm-hmm. and clearly the sovereignty of God that is depicted in every um, passage of scripture and they're such a hungry for they're so so hungry for it um, because I think the alternative is to continue to to drink the sand of the desert that doesn't satisfy in a culture that says just give yourself more of the the lust and the frenzy of self that that doesn't doesn't bring joy and there is true joy in knowing that I am free truly free now for the first time to pursue the things of righteousness the things that bring glory and honor um, to to Christ it's always encouraging for me to see people you know everyone's you know conversion story that it can vary you know some people know exactly when it was some people feel like it was a process but it's always encouraging for me when someone who doesn't even know the terms reformed theology or Calvinism or anything like that but when they explain to you their conversion story, and it's so plain to them that they did not want Christ, they did not choose Christ, and then all of a sudden that they were changed, something was done within them, and then further down the road they learned the terms for all that stuff, and they're like, "Oh yeah, like I, I was a Calvinist before I ever knew that. Like I, I wasn't free before. There's no way. Like I was a. There's a guy that I'm thinking of. He's a young, he's a young guy. I think he's 23 maybe. He teaches at Wednesday nights at our at our church, and he'll he had a conversion like that, and he'll tell you like, man, I didn't know the theological terms." But I was totally a slave. I wasn't seeking for God, and I just had, like, I mean, he would explain it just like a freak, <laughs> like a 180. Like, God literally just changed his heart. And so you don't have to explain stuff like this to people like that, because they get it, you know. They don't have any kind of illusions of, well, I, I'm kind of good. I'm a good person. I'm a smart person, so I made a good choice to follow Christ. You know, people like that, that just have a total 180, it's encouraging to see that. The more people understand their sin, yeah. right? The mm-hmm. more they understand the doctrines of grace. Um, kind of f- flipping some things uh, on its head, I, I just want to look at the idea of the history. And, and Chris, you brought some of this up, that this has peaked various times in church history. And it appears that we're in a peak again of the importance of, of the understanding of free will and what that means in the, um, the doctrine of salvation. Why do you think this is a repeated uh, resurgence that happens over again and over again and over again. Well, it definitely testifies to not only the importance of it, but uh, that it really is something that is at the heart of uh, the gospel and the scriptures. 
that this would be something that continues to come under attack. I mean, it came under attack, as I mentioned earlier, uh, with uh, the teachings of Pelagius. Uh, and obviously Pelagianism was uh, condemned as heresy. And then after that, that was kind of modified. And then you came out with semi-Pelagianism, and that was condemned as heresy. And then, you know, you go down the line and you come to the Reformation and you've got the, the Calvin and our Arminian uh, issue going on. And, you know, the canons of Dort are convened and you've got uh, the issue brought up again. And I think one of the things that I think ought to at least cause us to stand back and something for us to consider is that every single time this has popped up, throughout church history. Uh, councils are convened, uh, the church goes to the scripture, and every single time it comes down to the same side has been determined to be scriptural, biblical truth, and the other side determined to be error. Um, you know, one side has continued to morph and change, uh, the side uh, you know, really pushing for more of a, an autonomous free will of man, uh, and the other side consistently stating uh, what we would consider total depravity or total inability of man. Um, I, I think it really testifies that it is a, a very central issue. I mean, even dividing up the body of Christ today, I mean, this is kind of a, a splitting point uh, for many. Coming from my perspective, someone who doesn't attend a, com I'm not a member at a confessional church. Wait, you're I, not? I'm not. <laughs> What's he doing on the podcast? I don't know. I'm just kidding. Do I need to quit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, from someone who's not in a in a confessional church, I can I can say this, um, without knowledge of church history and confessions, this issue comes up a lot more frequently than it should. You know what I mean? Because people don't have a knowledge that, like Chris said, this has come up over and over and over again. People don't necessarily have a confession that they're aware of or that they subscribe to. And I mean like an actual confession, not a statement of faith that you wrote up because you thought you were smart, but something that's actually historic that people have believed and defended and gone to to clarify like the big themes of what Scripture is teaching. You know? um, when you don't have something like that, this issue comes up a lot more often because our nature is to take glory <laughs> for ourselves and think that we're freer than we really are and not to give God his due glory. So I think without um, confessions, without a knowledge of church history, you're going to fall into this trap a lot more often, thinking that the will of man is a whole lot more freer than it really is. Yeah. Church planner, do your church a favor Yeah, and put these guardrails in place, is mm -hmm. what I hear you saying, because your church in time may, may not be, well, you're their church planner, but eventually it's going to come back if this if these truths aren't already proclaimed and it's all and like chris pointed out it's always going to scripture it's not that there's authority in this confession it's not that there's authority just because you know some church history but the matter is always settled because of what scripture says and the confessions help us do that especially for this yeah. issue because from a non-confessional pers perspective you know my church like there's a lot of discussion about this stuff because there's not specificity you know what i mean and people aren't and what i hear you saying is people aren't even aware Right. That this has been debated for before. For for centuries. And so when yeah. they hear something that sounds foreign to them, they just assume it's ludicrous. It, mm -hmm. it can't be true. And yet they're ignoring huge portions of Scripture. If yeah. not, I could say the entirety of Scripture. Right. 
Um, I know. I mean, I've talked to I've talked to pastors who have told me they believe that every human being is born as a perfect blank slate <laughs> with the total ability to either choose God or not choose do God. They, do and they I'm have going, children? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, right? That's and crazy. Going, what? And, and I told them, I'm like, you guys, I mean, that's not even Arminianism. I mean, that's going clear back to full-blown Pelagianism. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and I think sadly in some cases they're like, who? Yeah, what? right. What? right. Um, and I'm, Who's you that know, guy? And, that's why this is something that, I mean, really, it, it needs to be taught, uh, not assumed. I mean, it needs to be taught but, clearly, regularly, and, you know, but, it needs to be something we really help the people in our churches to understand, and because it is going to be something that's going to influence everything else we think we understand from the Bible. But should we be surprised, because when you look at a lot of the preaching in the evangelical world, it's moralism. Yeah. It's Right. You have the ability, try harder, you know, and hey, use seven steps of Nehemiah here and the way in which he was a leader, apply those to your lives and you'll be a better leader at work and at home and everything will be good. So in a sense, we're not surprised, we shouldn't be surprised or caught off guard by there is this um, dismissal of, of a key doctrine because it's not taught and and yet when people hear it, it makes so much sense, like you were saying earlier. Yeah, that was my experience. Yeah, he definitely called me. I wasn't in the pursuit of him. I I was on the road <laughs> to go actually persecute the church, and he called me. Yeah, and you know, much like uh, the Apostle Paul. And so you look at that, and you say it makes it, it, it just it makes sense why there's a resurgence in 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 our in our time. Um, you know, perhaps one other thing to mention on this, too, just to be clear on this, because I, I encounter this a lot. Uh, people will say, but I made a choice. And I will say, yes, uh, you made a choice. I made a choice. Nobody is denying that we made a choice. What we're trying to get at is that God moved first. Right. Uh, that, that God is the one who enabled that choice in me to be made. Yes, I made that choice, and that choice was a real choice. I made a decision uh, to believe on Christ as Lord and Savior. But what Scripture teaches is raised it was a God. hand, walked an aisle, yep, prayed a prayer, yeah. checked a box. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was God who initiated that in me, who regenerated me, and who enabled uh, as I, that gospel was being preached that uh, my nature was changed, and suddenly I was irresistibly drawn to Christ, right, he and the decision was made. He gave you a, a heart of flesh that desired Christ, when previously right. all you had was a heart of stone that wanted nothing to do with God, and in fact hated God, you know? Right, right. I mean, it's just, it's that Ezekiel 36, you know, regeneration, man, and, uh, you know, faith was formed in me by the Spirit of God, and that faith was manifest in, in, in my thinking as a decision to receive Christ. So yeah, no one here is denying that we make a choice, uh, that we choose God. But, uh, but we're going back prior to that and understanding that before we ever made a choice to choose Him, that He chose us, and that is what enabled our choice. Mm -hmm. yeah. Zach, I want to go back to some things you were saying about um, the local church, and you, you, what are some of the arguments you hear against the doctrine um, that that God chooses man, that get, that man's free will is really 
not that autonomous. Yeah. Um, what are, what are some of the the pushback you get? It it honestly comes down to a, a misunderstanding. Half of the battle is just trying to get them to understand th- those who would reject you know the reform view of of free will or the bondage of the will. Half the battle is trying to get them to understand what we're really saying because there's a lot of straw men, and I don't think mo- most people that I come in contact with aren't giving straw men like intentionally they just misunderstand what we mean they'll go to like what chris said where they think that i'm saying you didn't actually make a choice that you didn't have a choice and that's not what we say right because chris just pointed that out and or or they'll they'll push back kind of against what you mentioned earlier of well you're just saying we're robots like i i make decisions all the time like i'm not a robot you know and so a lot of it is just trying to explain the scriptural view the reform view and trying to get them to understand what that is first, you know, because a lot of the arguments against what what I'm trying to say isn't really um, arguing against what I'm actually saying, because I'm not saying that people didn't make a choice to choose Christ. Of course, you you choose Christ. You're presented with, you know, hey, believe in the gospel, repent and believe. That's a call that goes out to all men and people who um, are regenerate choose to follow Christ. That's a real choice. But like Chris said, it's about who moves first? Well, God moves first and he regenerates you first. And so as far as the arguments that I encounter, it's usually just misunderstandings and they're arguing against being a robot, which is not what I'm saying, or they're arguing against making a choice, which I'm not saying that they didn't do that either. So it's really, for me, half the battle is just getting them to understand what my view actually is. Wouldn't you, you know, if you guys encountered the, well, then if man isn't free, then God must be the author of sin. Yeah. Right. You, you get to that. And, and we, I think we dealt with some of this back in chapter five, the, the on providence. If, if God is, if God, if all things are working out to his purpose and, 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 and he's in charge of all things, then surely God is the author of sin. But specifically on the issue of freedom, if man's not free, then God must be the one who who's, who's choosing for people to sin. And therefore, how can he be just? How can he be good? What do you say to that, Chris? I say that uh, ordination of all things that come to pass does not equal uh, God's, uh, well, you might say ordination does not equal causation, that God is not the author of sin in that sense. And I do remember we touched on this uh, a while back, that in saying that uh, it's kind of a strange thing because as we're talking about this, we're talking about human will. And I can see where people are going to maybe come to this conclusion and say, well, okay, if this is the case, then, and God is in control of all of this, then, uh, then in some way that makes God the author of sin. I, I just don't see how that logically follows. Um, I, I encounter the same kind of stuff. And so one time, I don't even remember who it was. Uh, actually I do. I'm not going to say their name, but it was on Facebook, and someone said something about, uh, I don't even know how the conversation got started. You know how these things happen. But the issue was, I made a comment that said, uh, we, don't, we don't naturally choose Christ, but God makes us willing, and then we freely come to him. And someone commented and straight up told me that that's a contradiction. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> like, I'm not saying God forces someone against their will to come to Christ. I'm saying he makes you willing. Previously, you were not willing you did not want Christ, you didn't have the ability to, but he makes you willing, and you come freely then to Christ. And then I use the example of Lazarus coming out of a grave. Well, did Jesus force Lazarus out of a grave? 
Well, not really. He raised him to life and Lazarus came out of the grave. You know what I mean? And so that was the, that was the example I used and it just didn't click. And I, the people that were arguing against me basically just said, that's totally insane. That's a contradiction. You can't be made willing and then come freely. But I think scripture clearly teaches that we are made willing and then we come freely. It's a scary thought to think that if we weren't made willing, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's the result? Yeah. Death, There's judgment. There's some really bad analogies out there that get thrown around commonly, uh, you know, concerning, uh, you know, what we what our understanding of salvation is and election and the will of man and all of that. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of some of the stuff from uh, Norman Geisler's book, uh, Chosen But Free, I think it is. And some of the analogies he gives uh, that, that, in essence, you know, trying to portray the Calvinist understanding of God as uh, uh, an arbitrary monster. Um, and I believe at one point even used the term uh, divine rape hmm. uh, to describe our understanding of salvation. And I was very thankful for James White and some of his work uh, in his book, The Potter's Freedom, and just addressing some of those things kind of head on that uh, – were there, but just some of these really bad analogies, um, you know, and even just some of the phraseology that's used of, you know, forced love mm -hmm. uh, and the idea, well, that's that's a total contradiction. You know, forced love is what we would call rape and and trying to impose some of those types of concepts upon what the scripture teaches and which is far more uh, nuanced and really th those analogies just are false analogies. They just don't fit. And so th I think that's one of the pitfalls that uh, I would tell people to be very careful of is, you know, buying into some of these uh, uh, analogies and kind of, you know, parable type uh, explanations of these sorts of things that really don't accurately represent what we believe the scripture teaches. That's honestly what I what I find most of the time. Like I said earlier, it's I'm not I, I I rarely get to the point where I'm arguing my view because I spend so much of my time defending uh, myself, saying, "Well, that's not what I actually think," you know. And there's so much misconception out there about what the Reformed uh, faith actually is teaching and what Scripture is actually saying. What are some of the most helpful uh, books on this topic? Uh, you you mentioned one already. Chris, um, but what are some of the other books that you can point people to that are working through this, this you know, very important doctrine? Um, this might sound kind of like uh, self-advertising for our podcast, but like the confessions, can I say that? Um, because they're painstakingly worked through and they don't flatten everything down to where it's just a super quick, easy, like yes or no answer. Like the, the idea of man's will and God's sovereignty is is like multifaceted. And I've heard, you mentioned James White, Chris, I've heard, I've heard James White say before that it's not, you want to flatten it down to two dimensional, but it's more like a diamond. You have to look at right. it from different perspectives and see all the complexity there. And a lot of the traditionalists and a lot of the non-Calvinists want to flatten it down and say, well, if, if man isn't free, then God's the author of sin. And they're looking at it in a much too simple way. And so if you read through the confessions, they're very carefully written, um, and there's actually a lot of similarity between the Westminster and the 1689. I don't know if you knew that, but they they're very carefully written, and they they deal they, they deal with the issue in a in a good way where we're not flattening stuff down to like a two dimensional level. Yeah, and I would echo the same thing there. Uh, 
just that uh, the confessions really are a great place to go. And, and especially even just as a reminder, we are not the first people to deal with these kinds of things and, and wrestle through some of these thoughts and really desire to understand what Scripture has to say about this. And uh, I think the Reformed confessions are an excellent resource to uh, that have been very carefully thought out, very carefully written uh, to try to communicate these truths as clearly and simply as possible. Um, as far as books, I mean, I know I mentioned uh, White's book, uh, The Potter's Freedom. I think also uh, the five points of Calvinism, defined, defended, and documented, I believe it is, uh, also a great resource for just kind of pulling all of these things together and having a, a plethora of Scripture references to deal with each one of these different doctrines. You know, one of the guys I'll throw out, um, and I appreciate obviously all the love on the confessions on the on the <laughs> show, the Confessional Collective, right? But um, J.I. Packer's uh, Sovereignty, um, uh, I'm sorry, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. My mind was losing, lost my mind there for a second, but uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. That book is so, um, so thorough. Because I really believe what happens as a consequence, people say, well, if God already has chosen and we're not free, then what's the point of evangelizing? How many times have we heard that? Mm -hmm. And he just walks us clearly through. If you've never read that book, it's, it's one I would highly recommend to uh, the listener because G.I. Packer, he's eloquent anyway, but just the importance of understanding that it is the sovereignty of God that gives us the encouragement to evangelize, and knowing that it all does not depend upon us. I don't have to get all of my arguments so perfectly um, ready that it, that if they say A, I have to say B, and, and convince them and win them over to to my my slant or my persuasion, but ultimately that that. God is at work, and He is the softener of men's hearts, the changer of, of the hard heart and making it soft, as Ezekiel um, uh, declares. That's the good news, that, that faith and repentance, the twin sisters, are birthed out of that changed heart, and, and therefore we can have confidence um, as we go forward that it doesn't depend on us. It, it is Him, and um, there's a lot of freedom, going back to our key here today, in that. There's a lot of freedom in evangelism because of the sovereignty of God. You see evangelism really impacted uh, by, by well, you, let me just say this. Your method of evangelism is going to be definitely impacted by what your view of free will is. You see like radical differences, people that are super anti-reformed. Um, so, you know, sometimes, I'm sure not all of them, but a lot of times when, you, when you're just assuming that people are generally seeking after God and they want, they want God, you're your evangelism becomes almost just like, like you said, a routine, like, well, they say A, I'm going to say B, and it's almost just like a glorified, like a sales pitch, uh, and you're just trying to convince somebody of something. But if you understand that that person is a rebel against God, well, what's going to convert them? Well, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God. That's really what I need to speak to them. Yep. That's mm -hmm. what I need to call them to. I need to plead with them to turn to Christ, to repent, um, to have faith, and to find freedom in Christ, and that message alone is what's going to be the avenue by which the Holy Spirit regenerates their heart. Great point. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point for, for pastors, church planters, and just any Christian that is going out and evangelizing is to understand that it's not about you. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when uh, Jesus tells the parable of the, 
the farmer went out to sow his seed. It doesn't tell us anything about the farmer. doesn't tell us anything about, you know, what kind of bag he had his seed in. <laughs> nothing, nothing about that. It just says he's just scattering seed. And, uh, you know, as Paul says there in 1 Corinthians, that, uh, you know, one plants and other waters, God gives the growth. And that uh, our job is just to, to put the seed of the gospel out there and let God work. And, and when we get that one, like you said, Aaron, it takes all it takes, man, all the pressure off to where all we have to do is just be faithful to present Christ and uh, to do so as faithfully as we can. And uh, and it's the spirit of God that's going to do that work. How dangerous it is if it's my job to persuade somebody's will. Yeah. And and if I can win their will over to my side, what's to say somebody else can't move them to another another position, another another viewpoint. And that's that's the scary part. But when it's in the hand of a sovereign God who's got a good hand, <laughs> a gracious hand, a merciful hand, how how pleasant and how sweet it is, right? Well, if your if your view of free will is messed up, you're and you approach evangelism, you're going to be trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit yourself, and you're going to think that converting someone is your job, you know, and it's not. Like, we're, we're supposed to proclaim the gospel, and the Holy Spirit converts people when they hear the gospel. That's a huge difference. I mean, I, I think it's it's the whole thing. We should be the most gracious people. I think Luke Potter said that last week in the podcast, because of our understanding of the sovereignty of God. I'm not trying to strong-arm anybody into believing you know, it's, I'm, I don't have to be rude and obnoxious. I can be gracious. And if they're not hearing me, they don't have ears to hear yet. Yeah. The, the blinders are still on, and I'm just going to continue to pray that the Word of God does its perfect work and God would change their heart. Everybody prays like that anyway. Even people that don't uh, agree with uh, total depravity, people that think people are totally free. When you, when you hear those people pray for their lost friends, they're still praying that God would change their heart. And I'm like, do you hear yourself? Like, listen to what you're saying. That's exactly the point, you know. You realize that God must change their heart. This doctrine should be able to encourage us to be on mission. I'm very much convinced of that, that that I understand the sovereignty of God and I understand the freedom of men's hearts mm -hmm. and the role that the sovereignty of God plays on, on that freedom. And therefore, it should encourage me to be on mission, that I don't have to have all the right arguments. I don't have to have the right schemes, the right systems, or wear the right blue jeans. What I can know is that as I go forth and believe in the message, the power of God, the gospel itself, that God will build his church. Mm -hmm. And I'm free to do that. And again, I just really think that this doctrine encourages that. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, anything else you want to wrap up with? Go out and evangelize. Be bold, you know? Be bold. Yep. Give Give that gospel... Let God do the work. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what it's about. Well, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook